Some of you may have read the book, Crime and Punishment, uh, the, the famous book of Dostoevsky. And I, I always laugh that I, I like Russian novels because it's people sitting around talking about theology and philosophy. <laughs> and I enjoy reading that. But when you hear, if you haven't read the book, it, the, the title is intimidating that you, know, you want to read Crime and Punishment. Um, and it sounds like the whole book would be punishment. But in reality, when I, when I finally read it, I thought, this is a page-turner. This is a really incredible book. I mean, it's, it's actually a far easier read than you might think. And the, the gist of the story is that the, the protagonist is this young man, this antisocial man, who resolves to murder his landlady. And so eventually he carries out his plan, and it seems as if he's gotten away with the crime. And so then the rest of the book is him wrestling with the weight of what he has done. He's committed this crime, Will he face punishment? And, and so it's this reflection on the, the theme of crime and punishment. You say, well, why is it popular? Well, it's good writing for sure, but I think that inevitably we know that there is or ought to be a connection between crime and punishment. And we, we recognize this when we live in a moral universe. You can think of, of the world, I mean, Perhaps some of you faced abuse as a child, and you think, will the person who abused you face any kind of judgment? Will there be punishment? You think in the world of human trafficking and the people who per perpetrate it, and you think, will there be punishment? Is there justice? You think of those who commit murder or genocide and get away with it. But then you can also turn it even in our own lives that we may not think that we have done anything particularly heinous in our lives, but we recognize on a deep level that we're not perfect, that, that if you define crime as any want of conformity to the law of God, and if you, if you see that the standard of God is to love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves, that, that we have also committed crimes against others. So the question is, will we face punishment? Is there really a connection between crime and punishment? So the first thing that we're going to look at today from our text is this connection, that there is a connection between crime and punishment. And we're going to look at this chapter, uh, chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, really from the, the high view, from the, from the airplane. There are a lot of details. We won't be able to get into all of the details of the text. But you probably noticed in the text this connection between crime and punishment. At, at times, it's, you can see it just in... A single verses. So, so look at verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9. Speaking of Israel, it says, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. Talking about an event in the book of Judges. So there's a crime. They have corrupted themselves. And then punishment. He will remember their iniquities. Then skip down to verse 15. It says, because of the wickedness of their deeds. So there's the crime the wickedness of their deeds, and then you see the punishment. I will drive them out of my house. Then go to chapter 10, verse 2. It says, their heart is false. There's the crime. Then the punishment. Now they must bear their guilt. And there's more examples just in this one chapter of this connection between crime and punishment. And this is something that you can see throughout the 
the Bible as a whole as well. It's not just in the book of Hosea. If you go to the very beginning of the scriptures into the book of Genesis, uh, the, the famous story of Adam and Eve, that they, God created them good. He created them in his image. He told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was in the midst of the garden, that the day that they ate of it, they would surely die. And they transgressed against the Lord. They, they ate of the tree following the wicked advice of the serpent. And so there was crime. And then there was punishment, that they were evicted from the garden, cast themselves and all of their posterity, all of us into the condition that we find ourselves in the world today of, of, of sin and corruption and suffering. There's crime and there's punishment. You can think of others like the story of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. These wicked cities committing crimes against the Lord and then... The cities are destroyed. There's crime. There's punishment. You could think of Achan in Judges 7. He was They were taking the land of Canaan. He took something that had been devoted to destruction by the Lord, and then he faced judgment. Keep going. This is a major theme in Scripture, that there is a connection between crime and punishment. So, so we know this from Hosea. We know it from the Scriptures as a whole. But we also know that this is true from our theology. In other words, our view of God that we get from the Bible. Because according to the scriptures, God is just. He is, he is righteous. He is this, this holy judge. And that means that he must punish sin if he really is going to be just. And theologians talk about this idea. They call it necessity, that there is this idea of necessity in God. And sometimes that can make people uncomfortable because it seems like God is bound to do something and God is ultimately free. But, but he's, he's free in the sense that he is free to, to live out his holy and righteous character, that, that he won't do anything contrary to his own nature. And this is what Scripture says clearly in Hebrews 6, 18. It says that God cannot lie. And so if anyone ever asks you, is there anything that God cannot do, the Scripture says that he cannot lie. 2 Timothy 2.13 says that he cannot deny himself. And so there's a sense that he's bound to himself. And that, that therefore also he cannot lie, he cannot deny himself. But then at the same time, if he's really going to be the just Lord of the universe, that, that he must punish sin. Sin cannot go unpunished. And if you think about it, this is actually behind the logic of the cross itself. We think of why did God, in all of his wisdom, send his son to take on a human nature and to suffer and die on the cross? It, if you, if you, why that plan, of all the plans of redemption? And if God could just snap his fingers and declare all the sins forgiven well, then the sin wouldn't be punished, that, that God wouldn't be the just judge of the universe, that the sin must be punished. And so how can sin be punished and sinners be forgiven? And that's where the, the cross is, is the only way, because Jesus comes and he takes the punishment of our sins. He, he takes it in our place and so that we can be forgiven and experience life. And so, that, so the question is always then, who will bear the guilt of, our, of the sin? It, that we have transgressed against the Lord. Will we bear the punishment that we rightly deserve? Or will Christ bear it for us? 
on the cross. Again, this flows out of our theology, who God is, that there is this connection between crime and punishment that we see here in Hosea. But you can also get this not only from our theology, from our understanding of who God is, working from God down to understand our world, but you can also get this as you reason and think about the world in which we live. I remember when I was in high school, I was really obsessed with the teaching of R.C. Sproul, and, and I remember specifically driving back from my grandmother's house, listening to a tape in the car, and, and he was talking about the, the philosophy of a guy named Immanuel Kant. And now Kant did more bad than good overall for Christian theology, uh, but one area that he was very strong was reflection on this idea of morality. And one thing that, that Kant taught was that in order for morality to be meaningful, there has to be some kind of connection between crime and punishment. Otherwise, morality is basically meaningless. And when we look at our world, we see that really crime and punishment are not connected in the way that we wish they were. That people all of the time commit crimes and then go unpunished. And so that leaves two possibilities. Maybe morality isn't meaningful. And so that would be the response of a philosopher like Nietzsche, who famously declared the death of God, that said, said no, actually, there is no meaning, there, that morality itself is meaningless. Or you could say there, there has to be a connection between crime and punishment for morality to be meaningful, so there must be some sort of judgment after this life. And so working from that place, that if there is a judgment after this life, there has to be a judge. And if there is a judge... He has to be good, or you would just have a cruel judge, and morality would be meaningless again. And then you have to have a judge who is all-knowing, because if not, he could make mistakes and violate justice, and morality would be meaningless. And he has to, to be all-powerful to be able to enforce his judgments. And so really, for morality to be meaningful, there has to be a connection between crime and punishment. There has to be a final judgment. There has to be a judge who is righteous, all-knowing, and all-powerful. And so when you put all of that together, this, this witness of Hosea, the witness of Scripture as a whole, the witness of our theology, and even just thinking through it, that we see that this is true, that there is a connection, and that we know intuitively that morality is meaningful. And I think that we can actually stop there for a second and just praise God that, that we live in a moral universe, that, that we didn't just arise from chance and it's not that we just return to nothing, that it's there, there is meaning. And so we're thankful. Would we want to live in a world where there wasn't a connection between crime and punishment? What would, what would be of those who have abused children or those who have committed genocide or those who have committed terrible crimes? Uh, we want this world, and we're thankful that, that we live in the world of God and the, the world of the scriptures. And so this is this great biblical truth. There is a connection between crime and punishment. But then I, I think at this point we can have three responses to this truth, especially as we reflect on what I read from the book of Hosea. And so here's the, the first response that we often can have. And it's to, sit, to look at God's punishment of sin. And in one sense, we're glad that there is a connection between crime and punishment, but we say his punishment is too severe. 
that it doesn't seem just. He, he's, he's punishing more than the sin deserves. And as, we, as you heard me read this, you probably noticed the crimes. I've already pointed them out. He, verse 1, it says, they have played the whore forsaking God. Verse 9, they've deeply corrupted themselves. Verse 10, they consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the things they loved. And just as a side note, that is a really important concept in Scripture, that they became like the thing that they worshipped. And that's true for us as well, that we become like the thing that we love, that we serve, that we adore, that if we're serving work or money or any idol, that we're going to become like those things. And if we worship the God of the Bible, who says, be holy as I am holy, that, that we begin to reflect the God that we, we worship. And, but, so we see the crime here. And then you say, what punishment does this crime deserve? And then look at the way that this outlines the punishment. So, so look in your Bible and kind of follow along with me. So verse 2, he's saying there's going to be no more food, no more wine in the land. Then verse 3, no more home, that he's going to send them into exile in another land. And then verse 4 to 6, no more festivals, no more corporate worship, that, that their, their worship is going to be brought to an end of their of their festivals and their ceremonies. Verse 7 to 9, no more false prophets, no more divination. Verse 7 of chapter 10, if you look then down into the next chapter, there's really no more will to live even. It says that they shall say to the mountains, cover us, to the hills, fall on us. And of course, Jesus quotes that very concept when he's describing the final judgment in Luke 23, 30, that they shall say to the to the mountains cover us, to the hills fall on us. But probably the hardest to hear, the hardest for me to read, was of what we see in verse 11 of chapter 9 uh, through the end of the chapter there in chapter 9. They're saying there's no more children. That Ephraim's glory, this is verse 11, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No more birth, no more pregnancy, no more con uh, conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Or verse 14, give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Verse 16, even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. And you look at that and you say, that's, that's severe. And especially you may feel the weight of that if you've experienced the death of a child or if you've experienced a miscarriage. You feel the, the weight of it. Or even if you haven't, if you've walked with those who have experienced, you know that this is, this is severe what is being outlined here. And so how do we understand this? How do we understand the punishment that God outlines? And this is where it's always helpful to go back and to reflect on the supreme holiness of God. And this is where we're, we're helped by this theologian in the, who lived in the 11th century, this medieval theologian, Anselm. And, and he, he talked about how you can think of almost different levels of honor. Of course, he was in a feudal society, so he, he was very clear to him these levels of who you honor. And so you can think of you honor your dog in one sense, you honor your friend in one sense, you honor your king in a different sense. And, and so he, there was this idea that, that if you... If you 
dishonor your dog, if you hurt your dog, you've done something wrong. If you hurt your friend, you've done something worse. But if you dishonor the king, you may face the, the death penalty. Uh, that, and, and, and if you take that idea and then put it towards the holy and righteous God of the universe who is set apart from all that is evil, that, that when we sin against God, and on, at root, all sin that we commit is against God because we are created in the image of God. We are often then sinning against others who are created in the image of God. That, that everything that we do that is against the Lord is ultimately against his holy and righteous character. That that brings us back to this sense of that who have we offended? And it's, it's this God who is worthy of all honor, all praise. And when we think of it in that light, what would the judgments that we see in Scripture start to make more sense? Because you can even go back to Genesis uh, at chapters 1 to 3 and think about Adam and Eve. Because when you look at that at, at first, it seems very similar to what we're seeing in Hosea, where, well, all they did was eat some fruit. I mean, what, what was so special about that tree? Was it just really valuable? Why would God hold them accountable in that sense. You eat of this fruit, you will die. And not only that, all of the sin and misery will come into the world as a result of that action. Think of the, the war, the genocide, all of it coming because of this sin that doesn't seem proportional. But then we recognize that it wasn't about the fruit. It was about the God who had commanded them not to eat of it. That, that what they did was to, to violate the command of this holy loving God, and, and that by doing so, they, they sever themselves from this relationship with God. Uh, as I've heard someone say once, it's cutting the umbilical cord to the source of life and joy and, and happiness, and, and this judgment that comes is completely just, completely proportional. You can think of another story in Scripture as well, Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. You may know this story where David is bringing up the Ark of the Covenant, that re represents the holy presence of God in the midst of the people, contains the Ten Commandments. And when they transported the Ark of the Covenant, they were supposed to take two poles, put it through on rings, and then you'd have four priests who would carry it on their shoulders. But they, don't, they didn't obey the command of God in the way they should transport it. They put it on a cart, and they're carting it up to Jerusalem and it, the, the Ark of the Covenant begins to tip, and this poor man, Uzzah, puts out his hand to steady the Ark. And it says that the anger of the Lord burned against him, and he was struck dead in the spot. And you read that, and you say, okay, there was, there was maybe crime. He maybe shouldn't have touched the Ark, but really? Death? That, that he struck down on the spot? Is that the punishment that that should receive? And that's, again, where we, we're thinking about it only from our perspective not in light of the supreme holiness of God. And I, I heard someone say that, that the problem with Uzzah was that he thought his hands, his sinful hands, were cleaner than the ground. But that really, he was a sinner, that there was this infinite distance between him and the, and the holy God. And so there was this extreme per presumption to reach out and to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And that's the same thing here for the people of Israel in Hosea chapters 9 and 10, that it seems harsh, but it's in, in light of the holiness of God, in light of the sinfulness of sin, that this is the just punishment, this is what sin deserves. And as you think about your own life, you might say, what does my sin deserve? Does it 
deserve a severe judgment like we see here in our text. And that's where the, I think the most helpful place to look at what sin actually deserves is to look at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you say, what does sin deserve? And you see Jesus beaten. You see him bleeding. You see him nailed to the cross. And what he was doing, as we confess every week in the creed, is, is, is that he was taking the weight of hell in our place. He was descending into hell for us. That is what our sin deserves. That is the judgment that it deserves. And so we see it in the cross, but at the same time, we see the love and the mercy shine through as well, that yes, God is just. Yes, he must punish sin. Yes, the judgment is severe because he is supremely holy, but then also he is loving and gracious, and he opens a way of salvation for us. So again, we've We've looked at this first response to the connection between crime and punishment, that it seems too severe. But here's another response that you could have. The second response is to say, to look at your own life and, and to say, God is punishing me for crimes that I have committed. That you see what Israel was going to face, war, famine, death, loss of their home. And then you look at your life and you see suffering in different ways. You see hunger, you see job loss, you see the loss of a, a child or a parent or a spouse. And you think, well, maybe since there is a connection between crime and punishment, maybe God is punishing me. And so how do we reflect on that in the scriptures? And it is true that in one sense, all sin is a result, all suffering is a result of sin in the sense that suffering and pain and all these things came into the world because of the sin of our first parent, Adam. But all suffering is not necessarily the result of a specific sin. And that's the point of the book of Job in the Old Testament, where this man, this holy, righteous man who walked with the Lord experiences suffering in his life. He loses everything. He, the, the, even his body is afflicted. He's sitting in the dust, scraping his boils with a shard of clay pot. And his friends come to him and they say, Job, there's a connection between crime and punishment. This is clearly a punishment. Therefore, there must be a proportional crime. You have done something wrong. But they were misreading the, the connection between crime and punishment. And the disciples of Jesus made the same mistake in John chapter 9. They, they walked past this man who was born blind, and his disciples kind of naively say, Rabbi, who sinned that this man, who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So somebody's at fault here, Jesus. There's a connection between crime and punishment. We want to know who committed the crime. And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so this is so important for us to remember when we face suffering. Yes, there are times where you do something and then you experience suffering because of what you did. But there are other times where you are suffering and there's, you can't draw the specific line. And that it's actually so that the, the works of God might be displayed 
in you and through you in your suffering. And so we can really hold on to the promise of Romans chapter 8, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, even in the midst of, of suffering. And so that is then this second response. So we said one is to say it's too severe. Another is to say, well, maybe God's punishing me. But then here's the, the third and the final response that we can have to this connection between crime and punishment. And it's to see the punishment that we deserve from a holy and righteous God. And then to say, what must I do to be saved? And this was the response of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel in the city of Philippi, and they were arrested by the authorities. And so there's a good example. There's a connection between crime and punishment, but they're being, in this life, they're actually being punished for doing the right thing. And so sometimes the, the way that crime and punishment works out is, is inverse to the ultimate goal and the way that it, on the final judgment it will pan out. So they did the right thing, they experienced punishment. And so they find themselves in prison, and it says that they were, they were singing praises to the Lord, and they were, they were worshiping God in their suffering. And then at midnight, there was this earthquake. Their chains fell off. The doors of the prison burst open. And the guard, the, the jailer, he, he was working in the, the framework of crime and punishment as well. And in Roman law, if you commit the crime of letting a prisoner go free, the punishment is death. And so he was prepared then to take his own life to try to head off the punishment that he would receive from the Roman officials. But then the Apostle Paul cries out to him, it says, with a loud voice, and says, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so you can think of where he began thinking of crime and punishment on the human level, that I'm going to face punishment from the Roman officials. But then in light of the, the, the sense of the holiness of God, that God is at work here, it, it raises it. And he suddenly realized, wait a second, I don't just deserve punishment from the Roman officials. I deserve punishment from the holy and righteous God of the universe. That is what I deserve. And so what can I do to be saved? And that is our response often as well, that, that we come to the place where we, we see the holiness of God. We see, wait, these aren't extreme judgments. These are exactly proportional. This is exactly what I deserve in my sin. God is holy. I am a sinner. How can I possibly be forgiven? And then we see the response in Acts 16.31 that they say, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And that is our call as well, that when we see the punishment that our crimes deserve, is to, to, to admit that we can't escape that punishment by ourselves, to put our trust fully and utterly in, in Jesus Christ, not as just a head knowledge about God saying that he exists, not just as 
a temporary faith to get us through the, the moment of suffering, but as, as trusting fully and utterly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's what we'll look at next week in verse 12 of chapter 10 of Hosea, where it says, Sow for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come in and rain righteousness upon you. And that's ultimately what this meal is about here before us. This is the, the Lord coming in at the right time to the, to the broken, fallow grounds of our hearts, that, that he breaks up by his spirit, bringing us from death to life. And then he comes in and he sows righteousness into our lives. And it's, it's not the, that we become good enough to earn God's favor, but the, the perfect life of Jesus is counted to us and so that we then can escape the punishment that we deserve the the punishment that was outlined here in hosea but then we also see our sin counted to jesus on the cross that that his body was broken his blood was shed that we can experience forgiveness and acceptance before this holy god who yes is holy but also burns with this deep abiding love that god is love and he opens the way for us to to not only be forgiven, but to be adopted, to be received as, as children of God, to be able to come to him with this ultimate boldness and, and confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, if you're, if you're here and you've never repented of your sins, you never trusted in Jesus, you haven't had that sense of, here's God, and here's me, and here's the punishment that my sin deserves, and I'm going to flee to Christ for refuge. Uh, we, if, you're, if you've never come to that place, we're thankful you're here. We want anyone to be able to explore what Christianity is and what it's about here in the community of hope. But we would encourage you to wait, to not come forward to take this meal. Um, and that's not to exclude you, but actually as a, as a protection against hypocrisy, to, that it's hypocrisy to take this in the outward form without believing in your heart the significance that is behind it of Christ pouring out his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We also ask that there, there are small children who haven't made a profession of faith yet, that they wait as well till they understand what this meal is and about and to celebrate it together. Uh, but for the rest, you don't have to be a member of Hope Presbyterian Church. You don't have to be a member of a Presbyterian church. But to be one who has repented, is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, has made that public by being baptized, by being part of a church that preaches the gospel, and, and one who can profess your faith using the, the words of the uh, Nicene Creed. If you look on page six in your order of worship, uh, this is this ancient summary of our faith that we hold together. And so let's read this, reaffirm our faith together before we come to this meal.